the Supreme Court has dissolved into a blur of BS, QAnon, and fundamentalist religion. It's not often that a photograph makes its way into a Supreme Court ruling, but it happened this week because Justice Sonia Sotomayor felt it necessary to expose Neil Gorsuch and his Republican colleagues on the court as unrepentant liars. Lying has become a habit for Republicans on the court. Scalia, now deceased, lied about the history of the Second Amendment in his Heller decision, as I lay out in detail in The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment. Alito lied about the history of abortion in America in the Dobbs decision, choosing to quote witch-burning 14th-century British judges instead of, for example, Ben Franklin, who wrote a manual on how to perform abortions. Thomas lied about the history of gun regulation in America as well, as echoing Scalia's earlier lies about the history and meaning of the Second Amendment. All are egregious lies, but Neil Gorsuch's lies this week about religion are among the worst, because religion, when it's brought into the sphere of politics, ceases to be about religion and instead becomes about power, a power that has sought repeatedly throughout history to replace democracy. Gorsuch's lie that the Bremerton High School coach who organized and led prayers on the school's 50-yard line was just having a quiet moment between himself and his God were so obvious that it's astonishing it didn't make national news. As Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, Coach Kennedy's prayers were neither subtle, quiet, nor private. Quote, Before the homecoming game, Kennedy made multiple media appearances to publicize his plans to pray at the 50-yard line, leading to an article in the Seattle News and a local television broadcast about the upcoming homecoming game. In the wake of this media coverage, the district began receiving a large number of emails, letters, and calls, many of them threatening, end quote. She then included photos, including one showing a large group of players on the field surrounding the coach who was standing up with his hand raised in the air giving a loud prayer. But Gorsuch plowed ahead anyway, doing everything he could to inject the conflation of church and education he experienced in his wealthy private Catholic high school upbringing into public education and law. He opens his decision with this line, quote, Petitioner Joseph Kennedy lost his job as a high school football coach in the Bremerton School District after he knelt at midfield after games to offer a quiet personal prayer. He then continued his lie over and over again, Gorsuch that is, quote, his decision to persist in praying quietly without his students, offer a quiet prayer of thanks, offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied, felt pressured to abandon his practice of saying his own quiet on-field post-game prayer. No one joined him and bowed his head for a brief quiet prayer. The district disciplined him only for his decision to persist in praying quietly without his players. On this understanding, a school could fire a Muslim teacher for wearing a headscarf in the classroom or prohibit a Christian aide from praying quietly over her lunch in the cafeteria. There is no indication in the record that anyone expressed any coercion concerns to the district about the quiet post-game prayers. Not a single Bremerton student joined Kennedy's quiet prayers. Not only could schools fire teachers for praying quietly over their lunch for wearing a yarmulke to school. Here, the government entity sought to publish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses. End quote. Those are all quotes from Gorsuch's um, uh, decision. He more or less lied 14 times in an an official decision of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. I don't believe that's ever happened in our history. Even at our worst, we have never been as corrupt as this. 
along with Alito's religion-drenched Dobbs abortion decision. And hopefully we never will be again, although keep an eye on the fate and future of the Environmental Protection Agency. Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan were having none of it. They opened their dissent with a blistering attack on Gorsuch's lies. Quote, As the majority tells it, Kennedy, a coach for the district's football program, lost his job for praying quietly while his students were otherwise occupied. The record before us, however, tells a different story. End quote. The tragedy of this case is twofold. First, it shows, as have numerous other decisions, the extent to which Republicans on the Supreme Court are willing to go to twist history and reality to arrive at the conclusions they seek. Second, and frankly more important, it plays on the public's general interest, uh, excuse me, ignorance about the true history of the Constitution's Establishment Clause, which prohibits the, go- the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion, guaranteeing freedom both of and from religion. For example, Colorado Congresswoman Laura Boebert last Sunday campaigning in a local church told worshipers, quote, I'm tired of this church and state, this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It's in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it, end quote. Since Reagan killed civics education while she was a child, it's probably understandable that she's never read Article 4 of the Constitution. Quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. End quote. Thus, I feel it's essential to set the record straight, even if this may turn into a lengthy screed. I hope you'll keep a copy of it handy for the next time some right-winger repeats the constant refrain on right-wing talk radio and from pulpits across the nation that America was founded as a, quote, Christian nation. The most well-known of the founders and framers of this nation, those who wrote the Declaration of Independence, led the Revolutionary War, wrote the Constitution, and became our first four presidents, strongly disagree with Boebert and Gorsuch on all counts. The founders and framers believed that secular democracy is a more powerful unifying force for a decent and peaceful civil society than ever any religion ever was or could be. Although most were spiritual in their own ways, and many were also openly religious, as students of history, the founders and framers knew the damage that organized religion could do when it gained access to the reins of political power. And with the memory of the Salem witch trials and other religious atrocities still fresh in their minds, The founders knew that those among the organized religions who sought to combine political power with their existing religious power would be unrelenting and could be deadly to democracy. While our founders were well-schooled in the history of the Crusades, they also knew from firsthand experience how oppressive religious men could be with even small amounts of political power. The Puritans, for example, passed a law in Plymouth Colony in 1658 that said, quote, No Quaker, ranter, or any other such corrupt person shall be a free man in the state of Massachusetts. End quote. Puritans banned Quakers from Massachusetts under pain of death, and as Norman Cousins points in his uh, notes in his book about the faith of the founders in God We Trust, quote, and when Quakers persisted in returning to, uh, to Massachusetts in defiance of law and in practicing their religious faith, the Puritans made good the threat of death. Quaker women were burned at the stake. Quakers were also officially banned from Virginia prior to the introduction of the First Amendment to our Constitution. Throughout most of the 1700s in Virginia, a citizen could be imprisoned for life for saying there was no God or that the Bible wasn't inerrant. Little wonder, notes Cousins, 
that Virginians like Washington, Jefferson, and Madison believed the situation to be intolerable. Ben Franklin fled Boston when he was a teenager to, the, to escape the oppressive environment created by politically powerful preachers and for the rest of his life was openly hostile to the idea of secular political power being wielded by those who also held religious power. Although he was enthralled by the mystery of the spiritual experience, Franklin had little use for the organized religion of his day. In his autobiographical Toward the Mystery, he wrote, quote, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies, end quote. Franklin, like most of the more well-known founders, was a deist, a philosophy made popular by early Unitarians who held that the Creator made the universe long ago and has since chosen not to interfere in any way, that neither Jesus nor anybody else was divine, or alternately that we are all divine and shall do as Jesus did and said he would, and that there is only one God and not three. Another founding deist who persisted giving who resisted giving political power to those with the religious power was George Washington. On the topic of Washington's religious sentiments, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson wrote in his personal diary entry for February 1st, 1799, quote, When the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never on any occasion said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion. And, the, and they thought that they should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare publicly whether he was a Christian or not. They did so. However, Jeff, Jefferson noted in his diary, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address particularly except that, which he passed over without notice. Jefferson concluded that Washington, quote, never did say a word on the subject in any of his public papers except in his valedictory letter to the governors of the states when he resigned his commission in the army wherein he speaks of the benign influence of the Christian religion. I know that Governor Morris, who pretended to be in his secrets in Washington's confidence and believed himself to be so, has often told me that General Washington believed no more of that Christian system than he himself did, end quote. In fact, President George Washington supervised the language of a treaty with African Muslims that explicitly stated that the United States was a secular nation. The treaty with Tripoli, worked out under Washington's guidance and then signed into law by John Adams in 1797, reads, quote, As the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries, end quote. But for the founders, this, just wasn't, this wasn't just an issue of being Christian or not. They vigorously opposed all religious leaders from gaining any access whatsoever to the lever, lever, levers of political power or intermingling in any way with state business. This was particularly true of the father of the Constitution, James Madison, who was himself, unlike Franklin and Jefferson, a Christian. For example, on February 21, 1811, President Madison vetoed a bill passed by Congress that authorized government payments to a church in Washington, D.C. to help the poor. Faith-based initiatives were a clear violation, Madison believed, of the doctrine of separation of church and state and could lead to a dangerous transfer of political power to religious leaders. In Madison's mind, caring for the poor was a public and civic duty, a function of government, 
and must not be allowed to become a hole through which churches could reach and seize political power or the taxpayer's purse. Funding a church to provide for the poor would establish a, quote, legal agency, a legal precedent that would break down the wall of separation the founders had put between church and state to protect Americans from religious zealots gaining political power. Thus, Madison, in his veto message to Congress, said he was striking down the proposed law, quote, because the bill vests and, and said incorporation church and also authority to provide for the support for the poor and the education of poor children of the same, which Madison said, quote, would be a precedent for giving to religious societies as such a legal agency in carrying into effect a public and civil duty, end quote. Madison flatly rejected government supporting religion in any way whatsoever, noting in a July 10, 1822 letter to Edward Livingston, quote, We are teaching the world the great truth, that governments do better without kings and nobles than with them. The merit will be doubled by the other lesson, that the religion flourishes in greater purity without than with the aid of government. He added in that same letter, quote, I have no doubt that every new example will succeed, as every past one has done, in showing that religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together, end quote. Madison also opposed, although he didn't stop, the appointment of chaplains for Congress. Quote, is the appointment of chaplains to the two houses of Congress consistent with the Constitution and with the pure principle of religious freedom, he asked in 1820. His answer, quote, in the strictness, the answer on both points must be in the negative. The establishment of the chaplainship to Congress is a palpable violation of equal rights as well as of constitutional principles, end quote. Madison went on to suggest that if members of Congress wanted a chaplain, they should pay for it themselves. Quote, if religion consists in voluntary acts of individuals, singly or voluntarily associated, and it be proper that the public functionaries, as well as their constituents, should discharge their religious duties, let them, like their, like their constituents, do so at their own expense. How small a contribution from each member of Congress would suffice for the purpose? How just would it be in its principle? How noble in its exemplary sacrifice to the genius of the Constitution and the divine right of conscience? Why should the expense of a religious worship be allowed for the legislature be paid by the public more than that for the executive or judiciary branch of the government? End quote. In 1832, he wrote a letter to the Reverend Jasper Adams pointing this out, quote, I must admit, moreover, that it may not be easy in every possible case to trace the line of separation between the rights of religion and the civil authority with such distinctness as to avoid collisions and doubts on unessential points. The tendency to a usurpation on one side or the other, or to a corrupting coalition or alliance between them, will be best guarded against by entire abstinence of the government from interfering in any way whatever beyond the necessity of present preserving public order and protecting each sect against trans trespasses on its legal rights by others. End quote. As he wrote to Edred, Edward Everett on March 18, 1823, quote, the settled opinion here is that religion is essentially distinct from civil government and exempt from its cognizance that a connection between them is injurious to both, end quote. Thomas Jefferson was perhaps the most outspoken of the founders who saw religious leaders seizing political power as a naked threat to American democracy. One of his most well-known quotes is carved into stone of the awe-inspiring Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., quote, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny imposed upon the mind of men, 
Modern religious leaders who aspire to political power often cite his reference to upon the altar of God as proof that Jefferson was a Bible-thumping Christian. What's missing from, Jefferson, from the Jefferson Memorial, and almost all who cite the quote, however, is the context of that statement, the letter and circumstance from which it came. When Jefferson was vice president, just two months before the election of 1800 in which he would become president, he wrote to his dear friend, the physician Benjamin Rush, who started out as an Orthodox Christian and ended up later in his life a deist and a Unitarian. Here, in a most surprising context, we find the true basis of one of Jefferson's most famous quotes. Quote, Dear Sir, I promised you a letter on Christianity, which I have not forgotten, Jefferson wrote, noting that he knew to discuss the topic would add fuel to the fires of electoral politics swirling all around him. Quote, I do not know that it would reconcile the genus irritable vatum, the angry priests, who are all in arms against me. Their hostility is on too interesting a ground to be softened. The delusion on the clause of the Constitution, which while it secured the freedom of the press, also covered the freedom of religion, had given to the clergy a very favorite hope of obtaining an establishment of a particular form of Christianity throughout the United States. And, as every sect believes its own form the true one, every one perhaps hoped for his own, but especially the Episcopalians and Congregationalists. The returning good sense of our country threatens abortion to their hopes, and they, the preachers, believe that any portion of power confided to me, such as being elected president, will be exerted in opposition to their schemes. And they believe rightly, for I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of men. But this is all they have to fear from me, and enough, too, in their opinion. Thus began a long and thoughtful correspondence, mostly about religion, between Jefferson and Dr. Rush. In later years, inspired by his discussions with Rush, Jefferson put together what is to now called the Jefferson Bible, in which he deleted all the miracles from the New Testament and presented Jesus to readers as an inspired philosopher. His Jefferson Bible is still in print and well-received if Amazon.com sales and readers' comments are any indication. In his autobiography, Jefferson wrote an interesting historical footnote about the religious leaders seeking political power he confronted head-on when he authored the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and who the other framers confronted when they submitted the First Amendment, which specifies, quote, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Speaking of the Virginia law he authored, which was the inspiration for the First Amendment, he noted, quote, where the preamble to the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom declares that coercion is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, an amendment was proposed by inserting the word Jesus Christ, so it should read, A departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. The insertion was rejected by a great majority in proof that they meant to comprehend, within the mantle of its protection, the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mohammedan, the Hindu and infidel of every denomination, end quote. But it wasn't just religious tolerance that was an issue for Jefferson. It was preventing any one religion from claiming it was the uniquely the American religion and then using that claim to grasp political power. Thus, secular government must allow even pagans and pantheists to coexist, while at the same time vigorously preventing any of them from gaining power over it. In his notes on Virginia, Jefferson laid it out clearly, quote, The legitimate powers of government extend to only such acts as are injurious to others. It does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are twenty gods or no god, 
It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, end quote. Yet in the days of the founders, like today, there were many religious leaders who aspired to political power. They claimed that their right to influence government was legitimate because, they said, government itself was founded on their territory, the Ten Commandments. Because our system of laws was founded on the Ten Commandments, the religious leaders say, they and their commandments should play a large and powerful role in government and be able to both take from the public purse and influence the courts and laws. This assertion that British common law and American law derived from the Ten Commandments was particularly infuriating to the founders. First, there's the simple fact that there isn't much overlap. The Bible and our laws differ in radical aspects. Our laws don't specify, as do the Ten Commandments, a single God who must be worshipped, a ban on graven images, statues, and pictures, require us to take a day off work every week, mandate that we honor our parents, make it illegal for men to covet other men's wives or sleep with unmarried women, or make it illegal to tell a lie except under oath. In fact, corporations have recently asserted the explicit right to lie under the First Amendment. The only things in common between the commandments and most state or federal laws are prohibitions on killing and stealing, which most people figure have always been pretty obvious. Of greater concern to the founders, though, is the naked power grab religious leaders were trying to pull off by claiming that America's system of jurisprudence was founded in their religious system and that therefore they should be able to insert themselves into the secular halls of political power. That claim was made so often and so loudly and believed by the more gullible of the masses that several of the founders thought it necessary to refute it in detail. Jefferson was probably the most methodical. In a February 10, 1814 letter to Dr. Thomas Cooper, Jefferson addressed the question directly, quote, Finally, in answer to Fortescue Alain's question why the Ten Commandments should not now be part of common law of England, we may say that they are not because they never were, end quote. Anybody who asserted that the Ten Commandments were the basis of American or British law was, Jefferson said, mistakenly believing a document that was, quote, a manifest forgery. The reason was simple. British common law, on which much American law was based, existed before Christianity had arrived in England. British conservative historian Sir Matthew Hale lays it down in these words, wrote Jefferson to Cooper, Christianity is parcel of the laws of England. But, Jefferson rebuts, it couldn't be. Just looking at the timeline of English history demonstrated it was impossible. Quote, but Christianity was not introduced till the 7th century, the conversion of the first Christian king of the Heptarchy having taken place about the year 598, and that of the last about 686. Here then was a space of 200 years during which the common law was in existence and Christianity no part of it. We might as well say that the Newtonian system of philosophy is a part of the common law as that the Christian religion is, wrote Jefferson. In truth, the alliance between the church and state in England has ever made their judges accomplices in the frauds of the, cler of the clergy, and even bolder than they are, end quote. In a January 24, 1814 letter to John Adams, Jefferson went through a detailed lawyer's brief to show that the entire idea that the laws of both England and the United States came from Judaism, Christianity, or the Ten Commandments rests on a single man's mistranslation in 1658, often repeated and totally false. It is not only, quote, it is not only the sacred volumes the churches have thus interpolated, gutted, and falsified, but the works of others relating to them, and even the laws of the land. Our judges, too, have lent a ready hand to further these frauds 
and have been willing to lay the yoke of their own opinions on the neck of others, to extend the coercions of municipal law to the dogmas of their religion by declaring that these make a part of the law of the land, end quote. It was a long-running topic of agreement between Jefferson and John Adams, our second president, who, on September 24, 1821, wrote to Jefferson, noting their mutual hope that America would embrace a purely secular, rational view of what human society would become. Quote, Hope springs eternal. Eight millions of Jews hope for a Messiah more powerful and glorious than Moses, David, or Solomon, who is to make them as powerful as he pleases. Some hundreds of millions of Muslims expect another prophet more powerful than Muhammad, who is to spread Islamism over the whole earth. Hundreds of millions of Christians expect and hope for a millennium in which Jesus is to reign for a thousand years over the whole world before it is burned up. The Hindus expect another and final incarnation of Vishnu, who is to do great and wonderful things, I know not what, end quote. But, Adams noted, the hope for a positive future for America was, in his mind and Jefferson's, grounded in rationality and government, not in religion. Quote, You and I hope for splendid improvements in human society and vast amelioration in the condition of mankind, he wrote. Our faith may be supposed by more rational arguments than any of the former. And yet the, the true faith of our founders, the faith in a secular political system uncontaminated by grasping religious leaders, is under attack once again, this time by six Catholic Republicans on the Supreme Court. In a modern revival of religious leaders seeking political power, emails fly around the Internet saying that the founders like Madison claimed the United States was founded on either Christianity or the Ten Commandments. Many originate in the writings of a right-wing group whose president helped prepare the history and social studies standards for Texas school children and are so badly taken out of context that they can only be called deliberate attempts to fool people. Others are simple fabrications, creating quotes from nothing. The United States and our laws were not founded on the Bible or even on biblical principles. Moral precepts against killing or stealing are found not only in the Bible, but exist among every tribe on earth, some of whose cultures and languages date back over 60,000 years. They're part of the social code of animals ranging from prairie dogs to gorillas. They're rooted in the biological imperative of survival. As Jefferson wrote in a June 5, 1824 letter to Major John Cartwright, quote, our revolution commenced on more favorable ground than the foundation of English or biblical law. It presented us an album on which we were free to write what we pleased. We had no occasion to search into the musty records, to hunt up royal parchments, or to investigate the laws and institutions of a semi-barbarous ancestry. We appealed to those of nature and found them engraved on our hearts." End quote. Jefferson then thanks and congratulates Cartwright for writing that the American Constitution as well as both American and British common law, are entirely secular in their origin. Quote, I was glad to find in your book a formal contradiction at length of the judiciary usurpation of legislative powers. For such the, gut, the judges have usurped in their repeated decisions that Christianity is a part of common law. The proof of the contrary which you have adduced is incontrovertible, to wit, that the common law existed while the Anglo-Saxons were yet pagans, at a time when they had never yet heard the name of Christ pronounced or knew that such a character had ever existed. But it may amuse you to show when and by what means they stole this law in upon us, end quote. So here we are in 2020, and the real beliefs and plans of the founding generation, slaveholders and abolitionists alike, has dissolved into a blur of BS, QAnon, and fundamentalist religion, all blended into 
this year's Supreme Court decisions by corrupt Republicans like Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. Jefferson concluded his letter by denouncing the efforts of churchmen to seize the fledgling United States and paraphrased a 1732 play by Henry Fielding, The Lottery, in which a character sings, says, Sing tantara tara tara, fools all, fools all, lamenting that in the lottery of life the fools win out all too often. What conspiracy this, Jefferson closed his 1824 letter to Cartwright, between church and state, sing tantara tara, rogues all, rogues all, sing tantara tara, rogues all. He ultimately overcame the police state that right-wing and religious fanatics in collaboration with John Adams had imposed in 1798 with the Alien and Sedition Acts. Will we do the same? <laughs>